again, we're, we're in the neighborhood of, uh, of the telling of Christmas, uh, but we want you to, uh, this morning, uh, hear it uh, directly, directly from the scripture. So we're, we're going to tell the story this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. All right? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, this morning, and we in particular thank you for uh, this story of uh, your son uh, coming to earth uh, to, to rescue and redeem mankind. Uh, the last four weeks, we've seen a lot of different versions and telling of it, um, but uh, this morning, we want to pay special attention to what your word says so that we can understand best who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to ask for a, a little bit of audience participation this morning as I want to go back about every five years or so, and uh, these are the most popular Christmas gifts according to year, and if you received this gift, uh, we're going to go back to 1970, uh, but if, if you received this gift, you can just kind of raise your hand. I'm just kind of curious. 1970, uh, the most popular gift that year was the Risk board game. Anybody? 1975, this one always throws me big time because I just can't imagine this, but 1975, the most popular gift was a pet rock. <laughs> All right. 1980, Rubik's Cube. All right. 1985, I remember this, Teddy Ruxpin. Worst toy ever, right? Um, 1990, uh, Mousetrap, the game. That's right up there with, yeah, not, not great. But um, uh, 1991, we won't go every five years on this because this was a significant time, I, I, I think. But 1991, Nintendo Game Boy. Anyone remember getting a Game Boy? All right. 1995, a PlayStation. That's, we'll know who grew up rich. All right. Who, all right. All right. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Uh, 1995, uh, Beanie Baby. Any kind of form of Beanie Babies. All right. 2000, uh, the, a micro scooter. Anyone? I don't even remember really that. Oh, okay. All right. We got in the front. All right. 2005, Xbox 360. All right. 2010, an iPad. All right. 2015, a Star Wars BB-8 toy droid. All right. Anybody? Right. And then in 2020, uh, I think the number one gift that was given was political and pandemic angst. Did anyone get that for? <laughs> right. All right. Anybody get that for Christmas that year? I uh, just me. No. All right. All right. Uh, obviously, uh, gift giving at Christmas is uh, an important kind of part of the holiday. If you're not done yet, I don't even know what to say to you, but um, you know, you, you have a, you'll have a few hours after church. We'll, we'll have you out a little early today. Um, but obviously, and I, I don't just say this as a catchy kind of preacher, cheesy thing to say, obviously Jesus is the gift that we want to focus on. And there's a, lot, there's a couple different tellings of this story in, in the different Gospels. The only writer that really doesn't hit on it at all is Mark. And I am very curious one day in eternity to meet Mark. Uh, in the first five chapters of his book, the number one word that he uses is immediately. So I, I think... I think Mark may have been an, e, an early ADHD kid, right? Because he's just like, I don't got time for mangers and angels and all that stuff. Immediately, Jesus did this. Immediately, he went there. So you got kind of Mark doesn't really hit on it at all. Luke, you heard a lot of the story uh, the last couple of weeks in Luke. Luke is where we pick up a lot of the details of Christmas. And then John, uh, the, the structure of John is the I am statements of Jesus, 
So in a very real kind of spiritual sense, John wants us to understand who Jesus was spiritually. The I am statements kind of outline that whole book. We're going to look at Matthew today, and Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and Matthew seems kind of preoccupied, I think because he was talking to a Jewish audience, but Matthew is pre- preoccupied with the titles of Jesus and, and kind of who Jesus was in terms of his titles and his descriptions. And so he's talking to a Jewish audience. He's like, this was Jesus's place in the authority structure. This is who he was. This is how we can describe him. And so I'm going to read a long section of Matthew. It's the, the Christmas story according to Matthew. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to do a little underlining. It should be underlined on the screen for you. But we're going to see how often in Matthew's telling of this story, how often Matthew does this. He highlights a title of Jesus or a description of Jesus so that we can better understand. We added the baby, you'll notice in the manger, who can, we, who we can, uh, best, how we can best understand who this baby is and what he came to accomplish. So here's Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah, you can kind of underline that, how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name, you can underline this, you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him, you can underline this, Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born? Here it is, King of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And Bethlehem and Judea replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come, here's another one, a ruler who will be another one, shepherd of my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose, uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance uh, with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice of one in, in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in the, having been warned in the dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went up and lived in the town of Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. You can underline this. There he would be called a Nazarene. So you have in these couple chapters all these names and titles and descriptions of Jesus. Matthew, I think more than any of the other writers, Matthew kind of organizes his telling of the Christmas story in this way. So what I wanted to do this morning with you is I want to work through those different titles and, and names for Jesus. You'll notice that in a couple different places in Matthew, in Matthew 1, 18, 25, and 2, 4, he is called the Messiah, the Christ. And those are really interchangeable. Uh, it, going back uh, to the Old Testament, really what it describes is one who is anointed, and we don't use that word very often, but really all it means is one who is formally appointed to do something. That's really all it means. And we do understand the idea of being appointed to do something. So tomorrow morning, you will appoint someone, anoint someone probably. You probably won't do it formally, you know, bless them with a prayer or anything. But you'll anoint someone and appoint someone to pass out gifts. And that, that will be their job tomorrow morning. They'll, go, they'll look at the name tags, and they will bring, they'll deliver their gifts to everyone. They'll, they'll read the tags and take care of that. Uh, you will probably appoint or anoint someone to carve the roast beast tomorrow, right? And it's been their job forever, and you're just like, this is, this is your thing. You, you carve the roast beast. You, you probably have someone that is appointed or anointed uh, to pick people up from the airport and drop people off at the airport, Right? And so it's just their job every year. They make the drive to the airport, and the same person does it year after year. We say appointed because it's not formal. You don't bless them with oil and pray over them. It, don't, don't make it weird, right? They, they, this is just something that we do. But the, the word basically means the same. And so in the Old Testament, God had anointed people as priests, that he kind of anointed and appointed them to oversee certain things, uh, the overseeing of the worship services that happened, the overseeing to make sure that Israel had their sins forgiven by God, um, uh, uh, overseeing the, the temple sacrifices. And this text is saying that there came a point where God anointed or appointed his son Jesus to do certain things. So Jesus comes and he makes a way for our sins to be forgiven. He makes a way to receive, for us to receive the Holy Spirit. He makes a way for us to have eternal life. And he has the position as the Messiah and the authority to do that job. So when he says, I'll forgive your sin, when he says, I'll empower you through my Holy Spirit, when he says, I'll give you eternal life, you can understand because he's the Messiah, because he's the Christ, he has the authority and the position and the ability, we'll talk about some of this more a little bit later, he has the authority, the ability, and the appointmentship to do all of that stuff. That's Jesus the Christ. 
Then there's Jesus in Matthew 121. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. I think Mary and Joseph kind of learned their lesson a little bit from John the Baptist's parents. Uh, Dad kind of didn't want to name him John, and Dad didn't get to talk for a real long time. And so they're like, all right, you want to you name Jesus? We'll name him Jesus. So you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And I kind of love this because of what we talked about the last couple weeks, that Jesus was born under the rule and reign of Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great, the kid's reaction about Herod the Great is spot on, right? It's like, why isn't he in the play, right? He's the evil guy, right? Um, and and the, the reaction to that was great. But these were the leaders in Israel at the time that Jesus was born. And I think a lot of people thought that when God sent the Messiah, when God sent the Christ, I think they would finish the phrase this way. He will save his people from their enemies, I think they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll save us from our enemies. He's going to drive out Caesar. He's going to drive out Herod. He's going to drive out our political enemies, and he's going to restore Israel. You remember the disciples who said, are you now going to restore Israel to its rightful place? And they just believed that when the Messiah came, he would save his people from their enemies. He was going to do all of that. And it's not that those aren't big issues. Caesar Augustus was Looney Tunes, all right? Herod was, they're just off the charts crazy. It's not that those aren't big issues, they are, but God is just doing something different than we think that he's doing. And he sees a bigger issue than maybe we, we think there is. And the bigger issue is that our sins that separate us from God need to be forgiven. I'm reminded of the story of the Gospels. In the story of the Gospels, there's a, a guy that was paralyzed for years and years and years, and he has the best friends in the world. Because they hear that Jesus, the healer, is in town. Like, we're gonna, he, he's been healing people left and right. We're going to take our friend who is paralyzed to interact with Jesus, and maybe Jesus will heal him. And so they go to this house where Jesus is teaching, and it's just overflowing with people, and their friend is paralyzed. He's on a mat, and they're like, there's no way we can get our friend to Jesus. And so they do the unthinkable. They're like, to the roof, right? I mean, these friends are awesome. So they go up to the roof, and they start digging a hole in this guy's roof. Cutting through the thatch, cutting through all of that. And all, Jesus is in there teaching. All of a sudden, he's looking up, and all this stuff's falling on him in the middle of his sermon. And all of a sudden, they lower the friend down, and Jesus looks at this friend who's been paralyzed for years, and he says to him, Hey, your sins are forgiven. And I picture this guy looking at Jesus and going, That's not why I'm here. I'm here, Jesus, because my legs don't work the way they should. I'm here for healing. And Jesus said, yeah, 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 we're going to get to that. We are. But I need you to know that there is an even bigger issue than your paralysis, and that is your sin. And your sins need to be forgiven. I wonder if sometimes we fall into the same camp. We think there's this huge thing that Jesus needs to do. There's this battle he needs to win. There's this thing that we want him to do. And it's not that it's not important. It's not that it's unimportant. It is important. But I wonder if we just need to sit here this Christmas. There's this other thing that Jesus came to do that maybe wasn't even on our radar when we came in this morning. On our radar was healing for our disease. On our radar was healing for our marriage. On our radar was all the plans for Christmas tomorrow morning, all the things that could go wrong, all the things that could go right. And we came in here with all these things on our mind of Jesus, this year, coming up to New Year's, this is what I want you to do. This is the most important thing. And Jesus like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not saying that's not important. But I wonder if we could just sit here for a minute 
and realize the main thing he came to do, which was to forgive our sins so that you could know God, the God you were created to know your whole life. You could know God in this life. You could know God in the next life for all of eternity, that he came to forgive our sins and so that we could experience joy, hope, and peace that surpasses understanding. He is Jesus because he would save us from our sins. Matthew 123, he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the practical understanding of that that is so encouraging to us is that God is indeed with us. He is nearby. But what we need to understand is that God is not a passive watcher. Sometimes we kind of vision God, that God with us, that he is some far away, sitting on the throne, sitting up in heaven, and he's just kind of eating popcorn, watching life go on down here. And that's not how they would have understood this Emmanuel concept at all. They said Emmanuel was God drew near to his creation, and he is not a passive watcher. Because he has chosen to be with us, he is actively for us. Do you understand that this morning? God is for you. He loves you. And sometimes when it feels like he's disciplining us or he's hard on us or he's trying to get us to go down another road, we're like, oh, God's against me. No, 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 no. God is for you. You might be against you (laughs) because you're making these decisions, but God is for you. God loves you. And Emmanuel shows us exactly how much he does, that he came to be near us because he is for us. Passive watching can be really frustrating. You can imagine you're all day Christmas shopping. You come home, your arms are full of bags, and you're trying to get into your house, and the door is locked, and you're fumbling around for your keys. One of the bags rips open, and all the presents fall to the ground. You finally get the door open, and you walk in and discover that five feet away, your kids were watching a movie and saw you struggling the whole time. Right? You'd be angry. Because passive watching is frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. God is not a passive watcher. He's for us, helping us, empowering us, equipping us, making a way for us to live the life he has called us to live. Now, he won't help us do something against his will. That's craziness, right? He won't help us do something against his will or his desire for our our life. That would be crazy to expect it. But Emmanuel teaches us, you are not alone. Understand that this Christmas. You are not alone. Emmanuel has come near. He is for you. He is with you. The Christmas story and the story of the whole Bible is this story of God not passively watching up in heaven, popping some popcorn. Let me see what happens today. I can't wait. Right? That's not God. God is not a passive watcher. He's engaged with his creation. He is alive, active, and with us. Matthew 2.2, he's also king of the Jews. He is called in Matthew 2.6. He's the king of the Jews, but he's also a ruler in Matthew 2.6 and also a shepherd. Now, claiming, we, we have a hard time understanding this because we don't We're not under the rule and reign of an imperial culture, a high honor culture. But claiming this title for Jesus was at best controversial, and at worst, it was deadly. King Herod saw this title for Jesus as the justification for the mass murder of toddlers, right? All right, so just kind of understand how serious of a claim this was to Herod at a minimum, that Jesus was the king 
of the Jews. Jesus' enemies in adulthood used this very claim of Jesus to provoke Rome and, and trick Rome into crucifying Jesus. And in both instances, king of the Jews was, meant to, was interpreted as a political king, a military ruler, uh, um, but eternal King Jesus did not see it that way at all. And that was the tension that's building between he and his followers. Like He's going to be a political king. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to kick Herod out. He's going to kick Caesar Augustus out. He's, he's going to do these things. And Jesus just came and he was like, no, I'm a totally different kind of king. He would not be, he would not be a king of the Jews like Herod was king of the Jews. When they heard king of the Jews, they thought of Herod. Like, we don't need another one of those. That guy's, right? That guy's nuts. We don't need another king of the Jews like Herod is king of the Jews. He would not be a ruler like Caesar Augustus was a ruler. He would be a ruler like a good dad is a ruler. He would be a shepherd like a good pastor is a shepherd. This is the, he would be a ruler, but he would be a shepherd ruler. Not like Herod not like Caesar Augustus. And they, in their first century mind, they did not even really have a category for this type of, re- for this type of ruler. There were no examples of it. They, they had a hard time even conceiving it. And, and we understand good rulers and bad rulers. We all do. There's a way to be a boss that is harsh and demanding and critical. And there's a way to be a boss that sets vision and cares for his or her employees. There's a way to be a dad, a way to be a dad that is angry, and there's a way to be a dad that is nurturing. There's a way to be a political ruler uh, that seeks to divide and seeks to win, and there's a way to be a political leader that unites. Don't make any mistake about who this baby is. Sometimes at Easter, it's easier for us to understand and articulate this. The baby in a manger, he's so cute, you know, that whole thing, right? Make no mistake about who this baby is. Jesus is a leader. And Jesus is a ruler, to be certain. But he is a shepherd leader. Jesus emphasizes this later when he says in John 10, 11, one of the I am statements that John structures his whole book around, I am the good shepherd. So the Christmas promise here is like, like an ancient shepherd, Christ knows you personally. He knows you personally. The psalmist will say that the hairs on your head are numbered easier for some than others, right? But the hairs on your head are numbered. He knows each of us personally by name. He guides us faithfully towards safety and provision. He stands between us and danger. He provides peace and rest. He willingly, this is the main way he's the shepherd, he willingly lays down his life for the sheep. Think Herod's going to do that? Think Caesar Augustus is going to do that? King Jesus does that. That's the type of leader and ruler he is. He says, I will lay down my life for the good of my sheep. And 30-some years later, that's exactly what he did. That baby grew up and became a man, and he lived a perfect life, and he willingly and sacrificially went to a cross to lay down his life for you and for me so that we could know God and worship God in this life and the next. Matthew 2.23, he is a Nazarene. Nowadays, we celebrate Matthew 2.23 in songs saying he would be called a Nazarene. But in the first century, they weren't singing songs about Nazarenes. They, they just weren't. 
Um, it was more of an insult than an honor. As a matter of fact, you may remember when Jesus got older, they found out, oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what somebody said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? It, it was seen as a backward, hick town, easy to insult, easy to overlook. Some of you maybe grew up in a town like this. I did too. Right? Where I grew up in Mason outside. Now, now it's kind of this middle class, nice little town. When, when I grew up there, it was like, can anything good come out of Mason? Right? Mason, Michigan, it's Hicks, it's farmers. These, you know, that, that whole thing, can anything good come out of Mason? That, that's, that's kind of how my family uh, grew up and how we were perceived. Um, Jesus the Nazarene, what it does is it gets to the humanity of Jesus. That he grew up in a place and had a childhood just like everybody else. He had a childhood just like everybody he, he went through puberty. And the Bible says that he sympathizes with us and our weakness because of that. He grew up a Nazarene. He grew up in this house. He grew up in this town. He grew up just like you and me. He, he never sinned. That, that makes him a whole lot different than the way I grew up. But he never sinned. But he, he lived this perfect life, but he grew up with the same kind of struggles, the same temptations. And when he sees us struggling and he sees us in temptation, he sympathizes with us because of it. So the Nazarene part of him gets to the humanity of Jesus, but there's another thing that it does for us. And let me kind of describe it this way. When a professional, athlete, uh, when a professional athlete's child becomes a professional athlete, or a politician's child becomes a politician, it's impressive, to be sure, but we are not drawn to those stories in the same way that we are drawn to stories where a person born into poverty, a person born a Nazarene, a, a person born in hardship from the wrong side of the tracks, when they make it, when they become the professional athlete, when they become the politician, we are drawn to those stories. It's like, man, they weren't born into this. This wasn't their family legacy. This wasn't how, this wasn't, they weren't born with a silver spoon. They worked hard. They had the right message. They became this despite their upbringing. Jesus was not born with an earthly spoon in his mouth. He was born in humility to a humble family in a humble town with a humble legacy. No one would ever say about Jesus, oh, look at how, look at the way he was born in a manger, in a barn, surrounded by animals. That kid was born with a spoon in his mouth. He was destined for greatness, right? Nobody would ever say that in an er from an earthly point of view, that he gained his influence. He gained his power in an earthly way. In a lot of ways, like, man, alive, this is a carpenter's son born in Nazareth, born on the wrong side of the tracks, born to a humble family without resources, and in many ways, his message and his ministry and his life are more stunning because of it. They're more moving because of it. He didn't gain his influence because his dad was this rock star politician. He didn't gain his influence because his mom was so well-known and he just adopted her name and he became famous because of it. He gained his power and he gained his influence because he was who he said he was, the Son of God. 
the Son of God. This is why him as the Nazarene is so important. Because he was not an earthly spoon that was given to him that gave him his power and his influence. His power and his influence came because he was who he said he was. He could do what he said he could do. And that's who he was. He's the Son of God. And his life and his ministry and his teachings and his miracles are honestly even a little more stunning because of the situation he was born into. Let me show you one last one. We're going to take a quick departure over to Luke. This is uh, the angel's uh, interaction uh, with Mary, but this wasn't in Matthew, and I can't end a sermon on who Jesus was without talking about this. Angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Because while it is true that this baby was a Nazarene, and can anything good come out of Nazareth? While it's true he was a Nazarene, born to humble parents in a humble way, he also, according to Luke, was the son of the Most High, the son of God. And this, in Luke, to me, this is the most important title ever ascribed to Jesus. It is only because Jesus is God's son It is only because he is God's son that we can call him Emmanuel. It is only because he is God's son that we can call him the king of the Jews. It is only because he is God's son that we can call him our Messiah and so on. If he were simply a kid from Nazarene, the son of Mary and Joseph, then all the other titles would be meaningless if he were not also the son of God. They wouldn't be applicable. They wouldn't even be possible. He would simply be another human leader who overcame great odds, born to humble circumstances. Nazarene, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, Humble beginnings to humble parents who made it big. That's all Jesus would be. But because he is and was and will always be the son of God, all the other titles for Jesus come into play. We tend to underestimate the beauty and majesty of this because of our American independent culture. If your boss were to send to you his son to ask you to do something, you would respect it more because it's your boss's son and you like getting paid and you like having a job. Uh, So you, you would respect it a little bit more, but in the first century, it was different. If a boss sent his son to you, it wasn't just that you respected it more because it was your boss's son. It was as though the boss himself were coming to you. So the boss sent his son and said, go tell the workers that they need to work till 5 p.m. and they're not to leave until this project is done. The son would go and be like, well, it's the boss's son. What do I care what he thinks? You might say that in our American culture. In that first century culture, they'd be like, it is as if the boss himself showed up and gave us these orders. It is your boss's son. It was just as if he had come. There's no difference. They were in a high honor culture. The son coming was the same as the dad coming. And so when this title gets ascribed to Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of God, because of the the ethics and the teaching and the theology of the Trinity, it is as if God himself came to planet Earth. 
full power, full authority, and full ability to do everything he promised he would do. So here's what son of God means for you and I. All the other stuff's interesting, and I love talking about it, and it's great. If he's not the son of God, he's just another leader born from Nazareth. But because he's the son of God, he can do every single thing. He has the full power, the full authority, and the full ability to do everything he promised to do. So when you sit here this morning and he says, come to me and I will forgive your sins, full power, full ability, full authority to do that very thing. When he says, come to me, I'll give you eternal life, full power, full ability, full authority to do that. When he says, come to me, I'll I'll empower you through my Holy Spirit so that you can face any challenge and any odds, full power, full authority, full ability to do that. Every single thing he said, it is as if God himself, because he was God in human flesh, it is as if God himself came and said, I will do these things, and God can, and so Jesus can. And so you don't have to sit here this morning wondering, am I forgiven? Through Jesus, you can be and you are. You have to sit here wondering about your eternal life. Through Jesus, full power, full authority, full ability. You don't have to sit here wondering, can I make it another day? Through the Holy Spirit, full power, full authority, full ability to do everything he promised he would do. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for Christmas. What what a magical, wonderful day to celebrate the coming of your son Jesus, who Matthew shows us all these titles, all these positions, all these things that Jesus was and is. And then Luke reminds us that they're all true. He wasn't just some kind of backwoods hick from Nazareth. We, We know that now. He was full of eternal life full of hope, full of joy, full of grace. And he offers it to all of us, and he can do it because he's your son. So this morning, as we kind of think about the baby in a manger, I pray that we would see that baby in the manger for everything that he was and is and will always be. We'll see him as the king of the Jews, a a shepherd king, not a tyrant. We would see him as God with us, not passively watching our life unfold, but with us, helping us and empowering us. We would see him as Jesus who came to save us from our sins. But most of all, we would see him as your son with the full power, full authority, and full ability to do everything he promised he would do. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together. And it's an opportunity for us to remember what he promised he would do to forgive our sins on the cross, to resurrect, empower us to live the lives we are called to live, to be with us, to be Emmanuel with us. This is the moment where we get to remember all of that. And that as the Son of God, he had the ability and the authority and the power to do just those very things that he said he would do. So we're going to pass out communion, and you can hold on to those and just thank God for his grace. And then I'll come back up here when it's all passed out, and we'll receive it together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, this weekend we celebrate your coming, but we know that this is... um, really just the beginning of the story that you came and for the next 30 years lived 
this perfect life, never sinned, and you went to the cross for mine, the ones that I committed, the ones that we committed, so that we could receive grace, new life, a new start, eternity secured, joy, hope, and peace. We're grateful for this story. What a great story. It's in the name of Jesus that we do pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, Merry Christmas. Uh, I'd love to, to see you guys all back tonight, 7 p.m., uh, for Christmas Eve service. If not, enjoy uh, family and uh, enjoy your time together. Um, we, uh, uh, we'll be back here at 7 o'clock tonight. We're going to close with one last song, Joy to the World. If you'll stand, if you're here today and you have a prayer request or prayer need, our elders are going to be in the overflow room uh, right over here, uh, right after service. They'd love to talk to you, pray with you, answer any questions that you have about faith or our church. So Merry Christmas. So grateful to have you here. Uh, thank you especially to our team that made breakfast this morning. It was awesome. So we're grateful. All right. All right. Let's sing joy to the world.